0: It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com Get ready to write for your life.
1: Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at a rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yay! Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I I you probably noticed that instead of both of us doing the intro, it's just me in the studio today. We had a hidden conflict on the calendar, so Steve sends his regrets, but you know, selfishly speaking, I'm kind of just happy to be talking to this guest by myself. We have a a great author today, Silvia Moreno Garcia. I cannot wait to talk to her about her career and her new book, Silver Nitrate. But you know how it is if you're a listener. Before I do all that, I have to talk at least a little bit about, you know, what's going on. That's what's going on. I am in Atlanta, Georgia at my sister's house. If you're looking at the the video, which I highly doubt since we get so few of them up on YouTube. But if you are, this set is not my house (laughs) and it's not, it's not a card either or a photo. It's actually my sister's basement. So I'm in her basement. I'm here actually on a book tour. Haven't had a book tour in many, many years. And I'm so glad I had a week in between stops. So this leg to Atlanta and Miami feels smooth as cream I'm not super tired even after having to get up at 4:45 in the morning, which I do not like doing, and if I'm getting up at 4:45 in the morning, it's only because somebody else bought a plane ticket for me because I would never I would never I would never book myself a flight where I have to get up at 445. But other than that, the tour is going great. And I just wanted to point out to folks who are in Atlanta. Oh, actually, never mind, because these stops are over (laughs) by the time the book tour comes out or by the time this podcast comes out. So just know that I was here in Atlanta and I was at the Miami Book Fair having a great time. And if you weren't there, I'm sorry. But it's it's been a ride. If I've mentioned this before, I apologize. But this very startling thing happened where I got a a blurb from Stephen King via Twitter, which was, you know, when we had Paul Tremblay on the show, he was making me laugh because he had memorized the date Stephen King tweeted about him. Well, guess what? November 7th, 2023, because I have almost also memorized the date And the publicist was just sending me stuff today about how they're going to package the quote for the tweet and all this kind of stuff. So that is fun. It's a very odd kind of experience having published since 1995 to feel like this sudden groundswell for the Reformatory, which is the book I'm promoting right now. But I'm grateful for it. I don't know all the reasons, but I'm happy they're here. I'm happy y'all are here. Happy you're listening. And with that, I am happy. I just want to bring on our our guest today. Silvia Moreno-Garcia is, I mean, incredible. She's the author of Silver Nitrate, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, Mexican Gothic, many other books. She's won the Locust, British Fantasy, and World Fantasy Awards, Mexican by Birth, Canadian by Inclination, it says on her website. She's originally from Baja, California, now residing in Vancouver with an MA in Science and Technology Studies from the University of British Columbia. So that's interesting to me, since I have no inclinations towards the sciences, so good for you. She's the author of a number of critically novels, as I mentioned, including Gods of Jade, and Shadow, Mexican Gothic, which I saw someone reading at an airport, which is always fun, even vicariously. I love seeing other authors being read in airports because one day, hey, I'll maybe see somebody reading my book in an airport. She's also edited several anthologies, including She Walks in Shadows, which was a World Fantasy Award winner. Published in the United States as Cthulhu's Daughters. And she's the publisher of Innsmouth Free Press. Her fiction has appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies, of course, including Best American Mystery and Suspense. Please welcome our guest, Sylvia Moreno Garcia. Come on in. Unmute yourself. Hey, thank you. Okay, right? So we yeah. like to make pieces. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's that's <laughs> bordering on rude. now. I mean, show your appreciation, but in a measured fashion. Act like you don't even know what to do with yourselves. Welcome to the podcast. I don't know if you've had a chance to check out the podcast, but we are really glad to have you on. Not enough women authors, I would say. So first of all, I'm just glad it's the two of us chatting. And I, I think I'd like to go back to the beginning with you, because it sounds like you like to write as much as I like to write, which sounds like a weird thing to say, because people assume if people are writers, oh, you must love writing. And frankly, that is not always the case. <laughs> Some writers seem to, in fact, really hate writing. They like the the end of the process when they have a finished manuscript, but they find the actual process somewhat hellish. And it sounds to me like you are not like that, Sylvia. So, yeah. so can you tell me a little bit about how you first discovered your love for writing and what it feels like when you're writing?
2: I started writing when I was a kid, but my serious writing came in my, when I was already in my mid twenties and I had moved to Canada and, and I was writing some short stories on the side. So it started with short stories. I was talking to my friend Tidar about it, who's also very big short story writer and i was saying that i have to write a short story next month in december for an anthology for a friend of mine who's putting a canadian anthology together and i said i'm um, uh it's not a lot of time and i'm a little bit out of out of shape and he said oh but you came up through the trenches with the short story like he did and he was like this is your your bread and butter and it's true i i written more than 70 short stories. I haven't counted them recently, but it's either 75, 80, something like that. And I used to, I started up with, yeah, semi-prosines and, and fan scenes and that kind of stuff. Lots of indie anthology projects. I would look at the message boards and rallens and those kind of boards and see what was open. Just look at the calls, like sexy story and, and send a story off and um, and and that that was just me it was just it was fun it made you a little money even if it was I mean if it was a fancy you maybe got a copy but normally in, in in speculative fiction it's pretty good it's different from literary fiction and literary fiction you often have to pay them to <laughs> to mm. publish your story and 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 then and in as in SF we have this tradition of the writer being paid so even if you get 10 bucks in a in a printout of of the story it's something. And I really needed the money at the time. So for me, 20 bucks, 25 bucks, if I could write a story was really very helpful. And so I just got going like that. It, I I like writing. It, it's a place of escape. And so it was this great way to get out of my house, my life and get into a different, different headspace. And I learned Partially because of that, and because I have a background in communications and journalism, I can write very quickly. I can write on topic. I can write, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, I'll do it on time and I'll and I'll do it well. But the short story markets really hone in how to quickly draft, (laughs) quickly revise and send out and write to spec. So that was very helpful. And I did a whole bunch of those before I started writing novels.
1: As a matter of fact, I will channel the missing spirit of Steve, who would definitely jump in and say, see, look what she did. She honed her craft, writing short story after short story, because that is something that we definitely teach under our life writing method of teaching. Uh, I taught in an MFA program for more than 10 years. This is our, of course, online course, Life Writing Premium, where the tenets are at least a sentence a day. But beyond that, really... Getting your your tools sharpened by writing short stories. So often learning writers are writing novels when they begin because that's what they read. And I think not enough people are reading short stories. So they say, I can't think in a short story. But if you read more short stories, you do start to think in a short story. So you were in a great group. You're you're publishing these stories. You're making a little bit of money here and there. I imagine a little bit more and more as it went what made you decide to take the plunge into novels then
2: well one thing that is not so good about short stories is that they don't pay that much (laughs) right (laughs) True. so, so financially and just in terms of attention novels get the you know more more money and more attention than short stories and so that's one you know uh serious thing that you have to think about when you want to transition, as I wanted to go from doing just a little bit of fiction writing to doing more and perhaps becoming a full-time freelance writer, you know, like where are, where's the income, where the income might come from. so one of that was like, well, novels would be really helpful uh, if, if I want to do this one day. But the other thing was that I, I eventually bumped into a story idea that could not be handled in in a short story format so could not be encapsulated just in 5000 words or 8000 words and it needed more it needed more space so it needed to be either a novella or a short novel and that's how i i ended up writing one novel that is a trunk novel didn't work out and then i wrote signal to noise which was my first published novel so and there were some false starts there were some things that I started that I thought would be novels and I left behind and I didn't pursue them later on. And maybe they became another book or they eventually became a, sh- became a short story instead of a novel, things like that. But uh, but yeah, there was this idea for a novel that I had that was just too complicated to be done in, in a short amount of time. It needed a lot more space.
1: So I told you that it wanted to be a novel and then it left you in the dust.
2: <laughs> <And> yes. <laughs> wouldn't even let
1: you finish it. But it's okay. I have a, I have a couple of those myself, you know, uh, and, and it happens, you know, when you realize it just takes so much passion and thought and commitment to finish a novel. I mean, you know, I got 100 pages into one that I started writing right after I first published and it just hmm, wasn't. Speaking to me loudly enough, let's put it this way, for me to continue. Well, now you're having such a huge moment. It's just, you know, people are like reading your books at the airport. You've probably seen your books sold at the airport, which is something that I'm still waiting for. But it has to be kind of weird because you've been publishing for so long and you've written so many books and then you popped. So first of all, what did that feel like? How did you know it was happening? And why do you think the breakout happened. And was it was it Mexican Gothic?
2: It was Mexican Gothic, yeah. And and the weird thing is that people think it's my first novel, but I wrote five novels before Mexican Gothic was published with many right. different publishers and and you know, short stories, novellas, that kind of stuff. And and then Mexican Gothic came out, and people thought it was a first time debut, but it it wasn't. I just nobody had kind of paid that type of attention to that one. So we had, when I realized that it was going to sell better than perhaps my publisher had thought or that we had been, I mean, you always hope that it does really well, but then there's reality. (laughs) That's for sure. Is that the publisher had ordered a print run of 12,000 books, which 12,000 books does not a bestseller make, you know, like quite frankly, it's, it's not the smallest print run of my career. But it's not the print run that is going to make somebody a success. It doesn't. It means the publisher doesn't have that much, you know, belief in you. They're like, eh, okay, let's see. And, and so we were going out with that and it was a pandemic happened and they didn't move my date. And so I was very worried because of that. But the other thing that happened was that they basically it came out on sale and they told me it sold out like first week. There's no more copies. Wow. And they said, and we can't send it to press because of the pandemic. All the presses are busy. We can't print any more copies. It's going to take a while, maybe a month or whatever. So I was, you know, I I there were like these three weeks or four weeks where I was in a state of um, I was really happy and I was very depressed at the same time because I had theoretically a bestseller. On the other hand, there were no books in stores, So people were like contacting me and saying, I can't find it. I can't uh-huh. find it. You know, people online uh, talking about that, like there's no physical copies of it. It did, you know, it did mean that that it actually sold quite a bit more in electronic. <laughs> and in print, if you look at those months and mm-hmm. uh, some of my other sales, it looks quite different in that way that suddenly, oh, okay, it's selling quite a bit in electronic. They're like, oh, okay, I'll get the Kindle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, kind of situation. But you do want to like, you know, get your hardcover royalty out of this kind of situation and and get into the bestseller list and that kind of stuff. And if there's not enough books, you can't do that. So there was this kind of like happy, sad thing. But then it held on because publishing cycles, and especially nowadays as the years have passed and publishing has continued to change, um, it's quite more common nowadays that you get most of your sales the first week right like that because a lot of the the pre-sales count for a lot those first few days count for a lot and so you often get books that hit the bestseller list maybe for the first week of sales and then they drop off immediately Mm -hmm. and 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 like that it goes on and there's a few books that stay on and those are the real that that's the really very successful books are the ones that who can hold on. And there's some books that if you look at the New York bestsellers list right now, you'll be like, what lessons in chemistry is still there. Yes. Because it's been extremely successful. And then it got a push because of the TV show again. And so those are the, those are like the gold, like standard, but most people don't even, you know, like don't achieve that at all. And Mexican Gothic just kept selling like quietly every week. It was still placing. Like on the somewhere on the New York Times bestseller list, maybe mm. not the top, you know, three or anything like that, but it was still there in like the twenty of that whatever they do, and so it was steadily selling, and it and that is really, you know, I said the gold standard, but even if you get something a little bit less than than that, maybe you're still kind of like every week selling something. That's really really great news, and that's what happened with Mexican Gothic. It, it slipped off the bestseller list after you know like. But after a few months, you know, like a few oh months, you know, I mean, so yeah. So it, it actually, it, la- it lasted for a while there and then it just kept quietly kind of selling.
1: That is stuff. so great. That is so great. I-, I love that story. I love everything about that story. But but there then there's the the why, right? Like was there a major celebrity who said on, on Instagram, hey, look what I'm reading. Or was it just like this sort of, you You finally reached, the, reached that point where was your other books had built up enough interest in your career? I mean, what have you figured out after all this time why it was that book that popped?
2: I mean, I think it was several things at once. One was that I had built enough interest in my career that I had, um reviewers and certain people who wanted to read it and and who were interested in 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 figuring out what this was. And, and that's one of the things that also doesn't happen as much now, which is building the mid lister, right? A lot of people didn't hit it big out of the starting line, even though we want to think that everybody did. And um uh, and being able to to build that audience Is is really kind of important. Something like in, you know, like Cormac McCarthy spent years not doing very well, and then he got the one book that was just pushed the right way. And so part of that is that is just building an audience, both with, with like, you know, the reader who's just a reader and the reviewers knowing you, wanting to to look at your work. I think the other part was just the marketing portion. The like the cover design that we worked on things like the mm. description they were they were really good they hit the right uh, the right point um
1: beautiful and, cover uh, beautiful cover
2: yeah it, it it was gorgeous in just the way we it was packaged and and sold and marketed to people i think was the right way uh, to do it and and also quite frankly uh people hadn't done gothic in a while there was this i felt that there was this kind of gap And that's one reason why I wanted to do it. I felt that nobody was doing the sort of traditional gothic that I had seen in my mom's days and and that kind kind of novel with a girl running away from a deep, dark house. And I wanted to do something that drew on that, but was also modern. And so I think it was just a little bit different for people. You know, you get like strawberry, 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 and then suddenly there's chocolate and you go like, oh, okay, I'll try. I'll try chocolate. Mm. Um. And it all and it all sort of aligned, I'm uh, in in that point in time. To, I think, just make it work, but it w- it wasn't one set of conditions. It was several uh, things at once, and and it wasn't a big kind of. It wasn't the kind of it wasn't a blockbuster book book where my publisher had invested a lot of money in it. I, even though, like I said, the the marketing that was done was appropriate for the book, but the size. That you would expect for that type of book, not not a huge party or like huge investments in advertising. It it was really very organic. It was it was the old fashioned word of mouth that you like to see, but that sometimes doesn't really happen with something. But in this case, it really was people talking to other people and saying, so you know, have you read this book? But yeah, I mean, part of it was the fact that you know, I said. You know, Mexican Gothic was a working a working title, but I thought it was a good final title, and I think it it is the right title for the book. It's very catchy, the cover and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't the kind of book where you where I could tell you, oh yeah, they spent like a ton of money on it. Like I said, it was a it was a modest print run in the in the beginning, but it it caught on. It it caught on and it and it worked.
0: You can shop from anywhere, doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working Go to shopify.com slash r-e-a-l-m now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash
0: talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: I like that version, though. I like that version because that just means that the the quality is rising to the top. and And it had to do with, like you said, you've built up audience over time. It's an area that was feeling fresh, all the things. Was this the first novel you wrote that was optioned by
2: Hollywood? Let me think. No, no. I had a smaller book that was optioned by a small Canadian production company, but this was the first one that was optioned for a bigger company and yes, for an American company.
1: So I I always hesitate because... In the past, when I ask authors about their their Hollywood experiences, I, that's when I get a, a rosebud, which is our editing word, and we mm-hmm. want to talk about it. But I did read that it was in development at Hulu, which is huge. And I just wondered if you could speak to what that has been like. I know we just came out of this huge... Hollywood strike that left a lot of projects like wondering, oh, my God, like for mine, the reformatory was optioned two years before it came out. (laughs) And I didn't know where things would stand. So far, so good. Knock on wood. We're still like working to get that together. But also some people lost stuff that had already been set up. So are you feeling good about where it is? What's it been like?
2: Yeah, I mean, the pandemic was a very weird time because a lot of things got optioned that I think would not have been optioned. If studio executives hadn't been trapped inside their houses just reading, so there was right. a, a swell of uh, of books being optioned. It it seems like it was a really good time uh, to be doing business, and that was one of my you know that was my case. Like I, I got optioned um, at that at that time at that point in time. So so that was great. But then you know things actually becoming something is really hard. People think publishing a book is hard, but you know getting a movie or a a tv show is um tens tens and tens harder exponentially uh, harder exponentially harder more cooks more all that so so the the short story of it is that nothing has really happened with mexican gothic i don't know if it'll ever be anything on screen sorry to say that to people but I, i guess you shouldn't expect it to be to ever see it anytime soon that that would be the short version of it the long version of it is that on top of the Usual troubles of the development process that any kind of adaptation faces, and which are magnified when you have a cast with people of color. I must say, this makes it almost impossible for anything to go onto screen. Then we had it this year, the added stress of the writer's strike and, and the actor strike placed many projects on hold. So I got several letters saying that, you know, my projects were being frozen in time basically mm-hmm. and they would be thought at a future date and so and and so now a, a couple of things you know more than one thing that i had option has been kind of thought the clocks started running again but but i do think that hollywood and and tv have changed also in this time during the strike we've seen a lot of things kind of already happening before but also this year a lot of kind of shifts in what has been a hit, what hasn't been a hit, and I expect that might affect some of these projects, quite frankly, that some studios might not re-option or renew, and they might say, well, this is no longer what we're kind of envisioning in this climate as the companies are changing. I mean, I think Warner Brothers just shelled the whole movie, Coyote versus Acme, so worst. that kind of stuff is really, quite honestly, I think, going to affect many things that maybe I had a little bit more confidence that, you know, like, maybe it wasn't like, oh, this for sure will happen, but maybe it was like, okay, it might, it might, might, might. And now I'm just kind of like in the territory or like, well, it ain't (laughs) to be honest with you. Yeah. Well,
1: never say never, but (laughs) I I did notice during the strike as these news stories were dribbling out about which series were being canceled, which series or movies would never see the light of day. Mm Mm-hmm so often they involved around people of color. Not all of them, because this last one is a John Cena project. And I'm like, what? Why? It's shot. <laughs> it's done. I mean, I I really, the greed of the people running this business right now has always been legendary, but I think we've reached a new era <laughs> in terms of that level, like to the point where the, the creativity is irrelevant. It's just all about numbers and The idea of shelving uh, a piece of art that you invested in and that people's careers are relying upon just because, eh, galls me. Absolutely galls me. But then again, you never know. And I'm interested if your experience in Hollywood had piqued your curiosity in terms of learning screenwriting. Have you written screenplays? Do you have any aspirations to become more involved in that side? Or is it more like, yeah, I'll do your thing and I'll do my thing?
2: Yeah, I love movies and so I am interested in screenwriting, but I love movies not TV shows and that's another like huge shift that has happened in the past, you know, few years is that very few things that are like a movie are getting bought you know yes. and produce. everybody wants a long a, a tv show there was this kind of period where they were ordering mini series kind of thing limited series but now that has stopped too like they i think they realized no and so yeah we are firmly i think in the in the era of tv although that you know may be changing again because of all these shifts uh, and so i don't like tv <laughs> to be okay. yeah i get I'm it just, it's yeah, a
1: whole uh, different yeah. world it literally it, yeah uh, right his room and and i had the joy of being in a writer's room in in January. And I'm a masochist, so I'm going to keep pounding my head against the wall because I feel like maybe, maybe having the input of the author might give it just a little bit more, although that could be naive thinking. But I have a couple things still in development and always optimistic, but I understand what you're saying about about TV and and kind of my husband kind of feels the same way. He's way more interested in films than in television, but that does seem to be the door that's open. So I'm just trying to learn all the things, but not get too emotionally invested because that way lies madness. Basically, literally people have lost it, lost everything trying to finance their own stuff. Mm-hmm. And people have become very, very cynical trying to work uh, in Hollywood. But you did mention that you love movies, which is a great intro to Silver Nitrate. And also what I understand is an idea you have for a future book you're probably working on now. And we have that interest in common. I just won a World Fantasy Award for a short story called Incident at Bear Creek Lodge, which has a backstory in kind of 1930s, 1940s Hollywood for a Black actress, which was a very different time and place. I find it utterly fascinating. And I do want to sort of explore that backstory as a part of my next novel, dare I say, you know, kind of about her descendants and 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 the impact of the experiences she had in Hollywood. What is it that fascinates you about cinema? And specifically, if we're looking at silver nitrate, Mexican cinema?
2: Yeah, I grew up in a world of I would say mediated world. Everything in my life has always been like movies and music and books and that kind of existence, like an interior sort of existence. And movies are just—they're kind of a really important sensory experience because you're in a really ideally you're in a movie theater in a in a dark room and you've got the sound and the and the image at the same time and and so it's a it's a very momentous experience as opposed to maybe watching a tv episode um it, it can be really 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 moving so i i went to see um a drama film an indie drama film on the, on the weekend rather than seeing a superhero film cuz i don't like superhero films that much and and i cried at one moment during during the movie and i think it's one of those few mediums where it'll actually do that to you where you will where you will weep in, in empathy, at least I will. I read something, people will sometimes ask me, aren't you scared of like horror books? And I'm like, no, and I'm not that moved about them. I, I I like the beauty of it, but it's like, I'm not gonna cry over a book. I never cry over a book. But I do cry sometimes over movies. And the movie that I was, watched was The Holdovers. Uh, it's a drama comedy set in the 1970s. And it's just, it looked beautiful. It's set in kind of Massachusetts in the 1970s and it was just gorgeously rendered it's slipping into another world it really is that's why you cry at one point because at one point you're no longer you you're in that in that world and that's what i really adore about movies and i grew up watching i mean also contemporary movies but a lot of old movies they would show them on the tv i don't know why there were a lot of black and white mexican movies and and i would watch them alone or with my great grandmother and just enjoy them. It was, I was a very happy child. And sometimes I think people thought I was an unhappy child, because I didn't have a lot of friends. And I wasn't going out, you know, to parties with people and all that kind of stuff that a lot of younger people like I suppose are supposed to do, I was kind of reading and writing. But I felt that I really had friends, because I had Christopher Lee, and I had Vincent Price, and I had You know, all these golden age uh, Mexican actors too, like Silvia Pinal and Pedro Infante, all those people. And I thought they were my friends. Like I was not, I was not alone. I always had kind of them. And so my life in a way was tied to movies in in a strange capacity that I think people who love movies do kind of live in this, in this sort of alternate reality where these people are almost you know, real.
1: Well, you convinced me after reading Silver Nitrate that you have worked in the movie business <laughs> <laughs> as a sound mixer, at least. So, and I, and I'm not, you're not going to convince me otherwise. Tell us your version of what the book is about. Mm-hmm. And, and it it's when that movie magic becomes literal.
2: Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a darker version of the, of the movie magic. Not so sweet, but it's two best friends. One of them as a sound sound engineer there in 1993 in Mexico City working in the entertainment industry and it's it's her and her best friend who's a washed up soap opera actor and they both have a chance meeting with a former horror film director of the golden age who tells them this story this tall tale about how he once was shooting a film with a occultist And it never it never got made. And from then it goes on. Obviously, you know it's 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 fantastic. So fantastic things and creepy things start to happen surrounding that. But it has a lot of mystery.
1: It's got all those elements wrapped up in there.
2: Yeah, it's mystery and suspense and uh, and and the horror film industry and and things that go bump in the night all kind of put together.
1: Yeah, I loved it. You know, it was like a friend. I mean, I winced a little bit when you uh, you described Fistan as a washed up soap actor <laughs> because to me he's a real person, and I'm just <laughs> wincing to hear you talk about my friend like that. <laughs> but although he is also very frustrating for a lot of reasons, so I kept projecting into the story that Monserrat had might have had some of your personality traits, although I don't really know you like that. So I know it's it's so. You know, telling a writer, oh, is that character based on you is such a trite question. But as I was listening to the reader, I kept wondering that. Do you have kind of a sharp tongue, kind of a no-nonsense personality like she does?
2: No, I actually am not normally. I'm I'm a fairly I think I am. I don't know. But my or at least my husband says that I'm a fairly funny person. Oh, good. Um, you know, and and in social situations a fairly quiet person who mm. kind of like withdraws and doesn't interact with anybody i kind of like to watch people more than be with people in in that sense but but yeah i, I tend to be kind of uh, funny i i do think i like my friends would say i have a sharp wit but it's not necessarily a mean wit and right. i think the The best description of myself that I've ever heard. is, And it's been from two people, but they both gave the same description of, of me. And one of them is my friend Danny, who's known me since I was like 19 or 20 years old. He said that the first time he met me, he was really impressed with me because I was he was looking physically at this cute little Mexican girl, but he was hearing 80 year old man. <laughs> I,
1: I was thinking old
2: soul. <laughs> yes. old soul.
1: I even got, I don't know what gave me that impression. Even when you were, we were just working together briefly and you were editing something. It just seemed like you were so, so very mature. I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. But, but yeah, that makes old sense. old man. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. That's my friend
2: Je- Levi says I'm an old Jewish. Oh, okay. So <laughs> it's even more specific. It's <laughs> he's even more specific. And I think he is correct. I am sometimes a grumpy old Jewish man, you know, um, and, and so, so it's very funny. Yeah, it's, I think it's something with age with, uh, I'm just a little bit, I've always been a little bit old. And, and so, and my humor, there is sarcasm, and, and all that kind of stuff. But there's also a kind of a sense of funniness. And, and yeah, and I, and I guess a sense of of time to it, I am, I am like a, like a very old kind of person, the things I like are very oldy, Person, like even when I was young. And so my children do make fun of me when I say I'm going to the opera and they just, you know, roll on the floor laughing and, and they're like, why? Or my favorite activities or things to do like you know collect coins things like that they just yeah they're like they don't get it they're like why do you like that stuff and like, well
1: like maybe it. you're a little bit out of time and maybe that yeah. explains your your attraction to historical horror because <laughs> silver i mean i wouldn't call silver nitrate it is historic i hate to call the 90s the 90s <laughs> historical, historical yeah but it is also backward looking from the 90s so i yeah. would consider it historical horror just because of that because it's looking back to an earlier era before the 90s which okay. cannot be historical because I was alive in the 90s but also obviously your next book too I understand is also tied to some cinematic uh history what is the joy of writing history and what is the most difficult part
2: uh, well the 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 joy and the difficult part are the research but they're yes, you know, both, both. The, the best and the worst both. <laughs> of, of both worlds yeah agreed yeah. Yeah.
1: How do you not get lost, honey? I spent seven years working on my last novel. And a lot of the reason was the research, not because I felt like I needed to know everything and I just read everything. It was because it was difficult research and I read everything slowly and I would close it and put it away and then come back to it. But the other side is sometimes it's just this hole you fall into. There were like like a whole planet was alive during this year and there's so much we can learn about it. So how do you know when you've researched enough or is it ever enough?
2: Yeah, there's a danger of kind of like getting lost in your own world and the world becomes more interesting than the actual narrative. And and so then you don't quite have a story. You just have kind of like the set,
0: yes, you know, a lot of the set
2: dressing set for the in story, story, right? But, but there's nobody there acting out the play. So that's one of the dangers. Yeah, there's a certain point at which... I think I feel that I call it caterpillaring. I feel that I've eaten enough, and I'm like a big fat caterpillar. I'm ready to become a butterfly. At some point, it just is like this. This no more. Like I don't want to do this anymore. I, I must, and I have enough, which is the other part. Like I have enough, and I don't. And this this has reached the point where it's going to become something, and and then it does. It becomes something. But yeah, there are just some. Some research is farther than other research. I will say that it depends if I have some knowledge, previous knowledge of it or like cinema. I know a lot of golden age cinema at the top of my head. It's not like going into a new discipline for me. I I know this stuff. You can quiz me on this stuff. I will tell you it's things inside there. But if there's some topics where I have looked at them and I haven't tackled them yet, I kind of have put them aside and said, okay, there you go into the idea box because the research for that, you know, would be so much newer for me, that like, I would be stepping into a completely new space. And I'm probably not ready uh, for that one. And, and there's several of those where I've just said, like, okay, yeah, that's not not gonna happen until a few more years, because it's not going to be like a three, four month, six month research process, like some of the others have been, this is going to be like, maybe yeah like a couple of years or maybe Oof. even more it's just that uh, that expansive yeah
1: there are so many directions i want to jump off with you but i think the one i would be kicking myself most if we didn't get into it is this idea of labels
2: mm-hmm.
1: because when i first started publishing in the 90s it was during a sort of a black books renaissance, Terry McMillan and Elan Harris and people like that. So the editors weren't buying my books because they were horror novels, Lord no. It was because I was black and a black woman and they were just trying whatever would stick to the wall. And I kind of snuck in <laughs> under under that. And then that went away for a while, and a lot of people stopped getting contracts and stopped getting toured. And it's sort of reassembling on the other side with more of a hybrid audience. Yes, my Black woman readers who've been there since the beginning are there, but also more readers who just consider themselves mainstream horror readers – which I I love, like editors like John Joseph Adams, who who edited out their screaming, started reprinting my stories, and more people got to know me. There's still a lot of people considering me new to them, obviously. But how do you grapple with categorization? Because we're both dealing with sort of a tendency of society to want to label us by our ethnicity. And also, it's not just society, it's booksellers, it's also marketers. It's like You know, as someone explained to me, we're touring you in the Black bookstores because that's who's hand-selling your books. Otherwise, you can go to Barnes & Noble and there won't be anybody in the seats. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And then the label of genre, too. Harlan Allison told me many, many, many years ago not to label myself a horror writer because he felt that being labeled a science fiction writer had hurt his career. And I'm also of two minds about that because the horror community is amazing right now. And it's a very loving community and a very open-hearted community. And I don't mind being categorized as horror, but then I hear people whispering my ear, you need to be marketed as more than just a horror writer. So how do you grapple with all this stuff?
2: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's always an interesting question for one, because labels change. And as you said, I do remember when I first read you, I do remember that, I think it was the between uh that I found and it was kind of considered a an African American category book that's that's where I found it. Mm-hmm. It was in the early 2000s like 90s when that seemed to be a thing and then as you say it disappeared and so that's you know kind of a problem when you're in a category that vanishes you don't want to kind of be in that <laughs> yes. in, in that situation unfortunately it's been reprinted and I actually like uh the packaging more of the of the new edition than, than I did back in the day, because back oh, in the day, it didn't really tell me. It didn't push so much its genre elements, you know, when, when mm-hmm. I found it and, well, and now so you know was, why. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it, it was, it was more of a, like a happy surprise rather than me, you know, going to that shelf, looking for that. I, I was finding a lot of other stuff and this was just like, Oh, this is like, you know, different. It's maybe a mystery. Maybe that kind of stuff is what I thought, but yeah no it's but it's interesting because, yeah, categories can disappear. they can pop in and out of existence. Urban fantasy was a big category at one point, and right now no editor wants to call anything urban fantasy and and so it it becomes a like a careful dance, and there are forces that are always working, invisible but powerful forces that are always kind kind of trying to shape this narrative, and sometimes it's not the narrative that you necessarily want. Right as a, as a writer, and for example, for us Latin American writers, we're often called magical realist writers. Even though I don't like that label, I think it's outdated. I don't think it describes my work correctly. But many times we're put in this bucket, and there's nothing that you can do for or or against it. And it does create some reductive spaces because it, the problem with being a person of color is that often uh, there's a didactic element to your <laughs> to your fiction, sometimes embedded in like your vegetables, you should have them because it's nutritious, as opposed to as you should experience literature for many, uh, for many different angles. And but, you know, there, there's a problem with that, because other writers, white writers, they don't get necessarily that, that treatment, right. And and that makes it hard sometimes to exist in, in certain spaces. And, it, and But you do at the same time want to be featured during Latin American History Month, during African American History Month and take advantage of that. And, and yet sometimes it feels demeaning, quite, on, quite honest, because you feel like it's the one month that I'm there, right? right. It, it's the one time of the year that you show me, and yet I have to kind of be playing in this game. And, and so the feelings are very complicated for me around genre, and genre categories and how you um, and how you navigate it. I try to tell people to really read the back of my book as opposed to assume kind of like something about it before they try it. So kind of like read the back of it, get a sense of it. Don't think of me as a horror writer or a science fiction writer or a fantasy writer, because sometimes people have, these ideas or what that means. And then you don't really give what they want, what you want them to. So if, if people say, you know, a fantasy writer, well, it's, I'm not a Tolkien like fantasy right. writer, which is a valid way of writing. But if, so if you read something like *Goss of Jade and Shadow, expecting that you'll be disappointed and same with other kinds of labels. So I just say, you know, kind of try to get a sense of the aesthetic and then go for it. As opposed to label me before and then be disappointed that I'm not like horror enough or quote-unquote Latin American enough or sci-fi enough.
1: Right. And the battle will continue, you know, and the categories (laughs) will continue to shift. And hopefully we'll just keep writing what we write and readers will continue to find us. Well, you you mentioned that you're married and you have kids, so you you probably have a, a busy life also. I'm just wondering, what do you do to stay centered and balanced. This is something we ask all of our guests. This is Steve's wheelhouse. So he loves to ask this in that great therapist voice he has, but a coach more than therapist. But what what have you found that there were times when your tools were not working in terms of keeping stress at bay? And have you now learned better? Or are you still struggling to figure out how to keep stress at bay?
2: I don't know. I think I like stress. I'm one of those weird persons that functions really well in certain kind of situations. I think I would have made a really good banker or a CEO. That kind of stuff is my is my wheelhouse. So I I like some of that. Um, like
1: the run of, on the bank and it's a wonderful life and the end of trading places where you're like, <laughs> there's like chaos everywhere. And you're the one cool
2: thinker. Yeah, I would have been a really good day trader, I think. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's one of those Job. I would have been a very good lawyer, I think, too. But no, I mean, I, to me, it's just like, like writing is the happy place. It's, it's the place where I want to be all of the time. And part of the struggle sometimes is to not only exist inside my mind, but to also exist with other people, you know? Ah, yes. To, you know, yeah, not just have my interior world and never have anybody else in it. And that's, I think part of the figuring it, figuring it out uh, because I'm, for that reason, I'm, I'm sometimes not, you know, the best company for some, for somebody in in certain senses. It's like, I'm having a great time. I'm reading Moby Dick. (laughs) What are you doing? You know, it's like, eh, you know, the other people might be like, yeah, it would be good if you talked or, you know, that kind of, kind of you're stuff.
1: reading moby dick and you're dreaming of something else in your head
2: <laughs> yeah there's you know whales and, and things like that but yeah but it, I think it's just kind of a leaving that space and, and coming back to kind of the real world is is sometimes the thing that I have to do
1: right so writing is your way to stay balanced and and anything <laughs> that's not bad is the harder thing to balance yeah, I can yeah. so relate Oh my gosh! There's a version of me that is a cabin in the woods version of me, you know. But also, I I do love my family, and that's that's the struggle is not to have the door closed all the time. You know, that's the struggle. Well, where can people find you, Sylvia? I've been I've really enjoyed talking to you. Where where are you on social media these days? After the great unpleasantness has scattered us all around. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, I do. You know, I have a website, Silvia Moreno Garcia. You know, Celia Moreno, I dot com, and there is a newsletter there. I put it out every month, and it's a good way to know what I'm up to. I'm reliably on Instagram these days, I think, and the other platforms are touch and go. Ah, uh, yes, I am on Blue Sky. I am on Threads. I am on Facebook. I'm still on uh, Twitter, which is now called X, which is very bizarre. But really, I've, I've kind of been moving away from those social media spaces and doing a lot less than I did a few years ago when I was really into it. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of got tired of it. You know, I think it just coincided with the point where Elon Musk took over Twitter and all that kind of stuff that I was not doing that much anymore. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. It wasn't fun anymore. So I was just like, perfect, because I don't like, you know, I don't want to do this. Either and and now I prefer to kind of just do my newsletter and be on Instagram. Take you know put pretty pictures or put a picture of something. It's a lot more soothing I find it than you know some of those other spaces.
1: Back in the day when I was a complete Twitter head, I I would sort of make fun of this idea of pretty pictures on Instagram. I I literally didn't get it, but now. There's something so soothing about a pretty picture. There's something so soothing about a a dog rescuing a kitten in a video, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I can flip through these reels, especially the animal reels. I can just flip through and it's so soothing, as opposed to, like you're saying, I think the vibe now on the old Twitter is so, it gives them so much less and takes so much more, I guess is the way I will put it. It's just harder. Well, anyway, I really loved having you on the podcast. I hope you had a good time. Everyone, go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. And as Steve would add, the hero in the story of your lifetime. Goodbye, everybody.
0: You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.